Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video service with more than 5,000 lectures. As a member, you can watch as many lectures as you want on any device. And for a limited time, listeners of The Culture Gabfest can watch one of the most popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for free. Just visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com culture and using the promo code culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Beyonce wins the Super Bowl edition. It's Wednesday, February 10th, 2016. On today's show, Hail Caesar is the 1011th movie from the Coen brothers. It stars Josh Brolin as a studio boss in the 1950s, juggling ransom demands, gossip queens, and the hydrogen bomb. And then, speaking of dropping the big one, Beyonce has dropped, I hate that locution, a new single, a new video, on top of which she ate Coldplay like a wee little snack during the halftime show at the Super Bowl. We talk both the music and racial semiotics of formation with Wesley Morris. And finally, Seth Stevenson, it's that time of year again, Seth Stevenson tells us which ads he loved and hated from the aforementioned big game. Speaking of hunting big game is uh, Julia Turner, the head of Slate, the biggest game of all. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Hi, Steve. I don't know if I am hunter or hunted in that metaphor, but it's very nice to have you back on the show. (laughs) Hello. I knew that you would bat it about the metaphor about like a spry cat no matter what. And I promise not to shoot you in the face. Dana is her full name, her given name. (laughs) (laughs) The birth certificate, if we believe it, reads Dana Stevens. I'm like Beyonce. I just have one name, just the one. (laughs) And you're the um, film critic of Slate.com and my beloved colleague, Dana. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Julia, before we dive in, do we have any business? Only to mention, well, two bits of business, I guess, actually. First, we should mention that in Slate Plus, Dana and I are going to grill you about how morally culpable you should feel personally for football, <laughs> Steve, uh, and sort of what it, what it was like to watch the 50th Super Bowl ever, knowing what we now know about uh, that sport and what its violence inflicts upon the men who play it. And also, we should mention that the Mom and Dad are Fighting show, much touted, was rescheduled because of the blizzard, uh, has been rescheduled to February 18th. That's a Thursday night at the Bell House in Brooklyn. If you got tickets to the original, they are transferable to this evening. If you did not, now you have a chance to go see 
Dan and Allison and their many special guests do what will no doubt be an awesome show. All right, that's the business. Let's commence. Lovely. All right. Well, Hail Caesar is the Coen Brothers' uh, Payen. How do you say that? I think that I think like that. Payen. I try to avoid saying that word. It's got too many vowels in a row. <laughs> I only write it. I know. Well, even worse, my copy reads Payen come satire. That was that was the best Payen in eons. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it is a Payen come satire about the heyday of the old Hollywood when everybody, even the biggest stars, were under contract within a vaguely totalitarian system known as the studio system. It follows a studio executive and fixer named Eddie Mannix who struggles with his own Roman Catholic conscience and a host of bizarre problems, most prominently and most bizarre, the kidnapping of the star of his massive biblical epic, uh, still under production, stolen off the lot by disgruntled communists, a.k.a. screenwriters. The kidnapped movie star is played by George Clooney to great effect. Why don't we, um, why don't we listen to a clip? Any more thoughts about who you might marry? <laughs> I ain't doing that again. I had two marriages. It just cost the studio a lot of money to bust them up. Well, we had to have those annulled. One was to a minor mob figure. Vince was not minor. And Buddy Flynn was a band leader with a long history of narcotic use. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were both louses. Marrying a third louse ain't gonna do me no good. I've offered you some very suitable clean young men. Pretty boys, saps and swishes. What, you think if there wasn't a, a good, reliable man, I wouldn't have grabbed him? What about Arn Seslam? He is the father, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. A marriage doesn't have to last forever, but, but Deanna, having a child without a father would present a public relations problem for the studio. The aquatic pictures do very nicely for us. So you go and strap on a fish ass and marry Arnie The pictures do well for all of us, and it's a tribute to you. The public loves you because they know how innocent you are. That's true. Let me see if Arn is open to matrimony, yeah. You sure he's the father? Yeah, yeah, absolutely he's the father, yes. Pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're laughing already. Dana, as I recall, you have some um, truly nuanced feelings about the Coen brothers and their body of work. How did you feel about this movie, and where do you think it fits in with what they've done previously? Yeah, it's interesting. This movie occasioned, on film Twitter anyway, a huge drive to rank all the Coen brothers' movies in order and decide where this one fell and where all the others fall, and it made me think of the fact that, for me, the Coen brothers' movies, although I always look forward to each new one with enthusiasm— have the quality of collectibles in some way. They have this quality of these like these distinct units of kind of aesthetic production that you can file on a shelf. It's sort of I didn't rank them, but it makes sense to rank them because they they sort of ask for it in that way. Um, that was a long way to get to saying I was really sad that I was on break when this on writing break when this movie opened because because it seemed so fun to write on based on all the the buzz and the trailers. And then having seen it, I was sort of relieved that I don't have to write on it because although it's barrels of fun to watch, I don't know that I would have a lot to say about it or that it's a movie with a whole lot to say for itself. I sort of feel like, strangely to say about the Coens, because they tend to be so dark and sardonic and biting, but I felt like this movie needed more dark, sardonic bite. I mean, I don't think it did near justice to how brutal the MGM, which I think this Capitol Studios, you know, that they've invented, incidentally, the same studio that existed in Barton Fink. It's their it's their fictional Hollywood studio that they returned to. It's nowhere near as brutal as MGM actually was in, in this period under Eddie Mannix. And it seemed to me like this was kind of a, a softball pitch of a movie, although it's full of delightful delights that we can talk about. Yeah, I had a real feeling of squandered resources and squandered premise when I watched this movie. Yeah, like, is that all there is feeling at the end, right? Despite how how many totally delightful moments there are in it, and I'm glad we listened to that clip of uh, ScarJo the wisecracking, uh, you know, 
the tough mermaid. You know, she, the, every little particular star turn in it is delightful. And I think a new star is perhaps minted with the performance of Alden Ehrenreich, who's basically the only unknown with a major part. And in fact, the only unknown with even a minor part, like even these tiny bit players in the film get Oscar nominated stars like Jonah Hill playing them. Um, you know, everybody gets a fun little turn and an accent and a bit. But the whole thing doesn't feel like it ever achieves liftoff. There's no sense of stakes. There's no sense of of this being either a truly delightful, surprising caper. Everything's a little bit leisurely in its pacing. And there's no sense that any of it matters. And mm-hmm. maybe that just feels like a naive, stupid thing to want from a Coen Brothers movie or something. Like, they're, they're so cool and in on their own jokes. But I liked it fine and think it was a great night at the theater and think you should go see it. And yet don't think it amounts to anything. What about you, Steve? I'm well, well, listen, I mean, I think they raise the stakes by making the movie partially about communism and God and the Cold <laughs> War, right? These are, these are these huge entities, kind of thematic entities that are all throughout the movie. They're not small or incidental or backdrops. I mean, it is a huge part of the movie that they're filming the story of Christ from the point of view of the Romans. And Clooney plays a Roman. How you're going to... De- picked the son of God on screen as a huge part of the movie. It's one of the funnier and better realized scenes in the film as Brolin discussing this with religious leaders. You know, I won't give anything away, but there's a defection to the Soviets, the communists. I loved the scenes with the disgruntled communist screenwriters sitting around talking dialectics with Clooney, who's brought around almost immediately to the thesis that the little guy is getting inexorably screwed by the capitalist system because he's a puppy. He's sort of a Ronald Reagan-like puppy who wants to please the people that he's with. So he mixes his own almost instant conversion to Marxist dialectics in with you know, stories about Danny Kaye shaving his back in Las Vegas. All of that's really beautifully done, but it doesn't I agree, seem integrated to a point, right? That, that that they're so smart at invoking these large themes about, well, what is it the American empire does? I mean, the Romans conquered the entire world via violence. We conquer it via Hollywood movies. Like, these are all themes that they're totally aware of and, you know, putting into the stream of their own film. It, and then every particularity is charming. I mean, including Clooney, who's wonderful. Scarlett Johansson is great. Channing Tatum is luscious as always. And um, you want it to come together into a coherent emotional whole. And Dana Stevens, I'm going to say you're right on this one. It doesn't really. Or a political hole either to me. But I loved it also. I mean, I, I was no part of me didn't delight in going to see it. Yeah, I loved it. I just wanted it to be amazing. And instead, it was just fun. I mean, and there is this climactic moment at the end, which I don't think it spoils the film too much to say that Josh Berlin's character, who's named Eddie Mannix and is based on the real life MGM fixer named Eddie Mannix, who if you if you do go see this movie, you should listen to the Karina Longworth, you must remember this series on MGM, uh, which gives you the backstories of some of these types of dramas within the studio system and which introduces you to the real life figures of Eddie Mannix and Nick Skank who who sort of end up as figures of sorts in this movie. But so Josh Brolin's character is wrestling with the fact that he he wants to be in the movies and it feels right, although maybe there are other more grown-up things to do with his life than dealing with all these kooks and loonies. And then towards the end of the film, he gives a kind of triumphant speech about what it means to make movies and how important it is to make movies and that the, the work that they do so ridiculously is valuable and worth believing in. And he 
at once the movie asks you to very deeply believe in his belief in that and also kind of zooms out in a cold, sardonic Cone Brothers way to suggest that maybe he's wrong, even though it just feels right, which suggests that maybe they're thinking about their own devotion to the art of movies and how fundamentally insubstantial it is. And then that's why the movie feels insubstantial. But the thing that I did love about it and that does sort of hold together thematically within it is that the power of a true star being a star on screen is kind of a magical thing to watch. And it does provide this showcase. It's almost like a little jewelry box where you open a bunch of little boxes and you get to see a little gem-like performance from a true charismatic person who can hold your attention on screen. Uh, And it's a little bit of a like a demo reel, like look what we can do with movies. Like you get to see ScarJo being a sassy vixen and you get to see uh, the introduction of a young cowboy. And, you know, they talk a lot about one of the things that George Clooney's character, he plays Baird Whitlock, but one of the things that this star has to do in this Hail Caesar movie about Christ is see Christ's face and convey to us, the audience, how humbled and moved and converted he is by the experience of meeting Jesus Christ. And he kind of pulls it off. And so mm-hmm. they've written a role where George Clooney, the star, has to play a star whose sheer star power can carry this plot. And they have all these stars and they do starish things in a starish way that's delectable. But they just don't amount to anything except Mm -hmm. for a suggestion that the movies are powerful but useless. And so this movie sort of feels powerful but useless. Dana, I have a question for you. And I'm really curious to hear your answer about this. Is it that they showed a degree of courage by not making the movie more sinister? And is that a way of saying, you know, we tend to look back on the 1950s and say beneath, I mean, the common way of looking back on the 1950s is to say that underneath the conformity and uh, the sentimentality and the patriotism, there was, uh, you know, there was McCarthyism, there was, uh, you know, a, a degree of like violence, and they didn't make that movie, right? Was that courageous? Or was that pulling a punch? I was, tr- I kept trying to decide that as I was watching the movie, because I liked that Mannix was in a way a man who seemed to have um, a core of decency. It's not about him as a, you know, inherently vicious man or a philanderer. All these tropes, they they refused. Did you experience that as, in its way, quite original and courageous or as a punch that got pulled? I don't know. I mean, I guess I have trouble framing it as courageous, exactly, especially because it seems like their their moral imperative in recent movies has been just the opposite. They've been very mm-hmm. interested in dark underbelly exposure and kind of elaborating how how systems work to kind of oppress the individual, which is what the communist writers are giving voice to in that in that scene where they try to convert George Clooney. But but the movie doesn't seem to believe them. It doesn't seem to believe anyone. I don't know no, where no, it stands no. ideologically. I mean, it just it seems strange to me to raise the specter of all of these things, communism and the blacklist, which this movie, I think, is supposed to take place on the cusp of, right? I think the idea is that the McCarthy blacklist has not started yet, but that we're on the eve of it. But yet there's not really a feeling of menace to that plot about the uh, the communist sympathizing film writers. I mean, if you think about the fact that they've already made a Hollywood satire that was incredibly brutal and I think went pretty deep in terms of its critique of that system, which is Barton Fink. And they've made a movie about a crisis of faith, Serious Man, about a Jewish crisis of faith rather than the Catholic one that the Josh Brolin character is having. But that that movie, A Serious Man, is also 
hard-hitting and serious with all of its farce and comedy. So it just seemed to me like this was an underachieving movie in some way. The last mm. 20 minutes or so, I did start to feel this feeling of deflation, like these scenes are wonderful little gems to collect in a jewelry box. We didn't even mention Ray Fiennes, fantastic as this kind of fey <laughs> ascot-wearing director named Lawrence Lawrence. <laughs> and so the cowboy is always in confusion about whether to call him Lawrence, his first name, or Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> and he gets corrected either way. Yeah, no, it's, There's it's a great kind of who's on first dialogue scene between them. I mean, the dialogue is as well-written and funny as anything in any Coen Brothers movie. But to gesture toward things like McCarthyism and the blacklist, um, you know, the, the actual violence and menacing nature of a fixer character like Eddie Mannix, the real Eddie Mannix, or even the Loretta Young story, which seems to be what was sort of filtered into the ScarJo bathing beauty story, right, about this, this pregnant starlet who is given the chance to have her own baby and then adopt it as if she had adopted it. I mean, that detail anyway comes from Loretta Young's story, which if you start to dig deeper, deeper into it is a story of date rape by Clark Gable, and it's an awful dark story. And I felt like all of that stuff that could have been at least hinted toward was almost repressed or, or mm. buried away. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, I, we need to move on. But I mean, it did remind me in that regard of Preston Surge's classic uh, Sullivan's Travels, which invokes the grinding horrors of the Depression and, you know, this one director's, I won't go into it, but I mean, it, it it's a movie about how movies at the end of the day are incredibly hypocritical and corrupt and they're made by hypocritical and corrupt people, but they're also completely redemptive. They play a completely redemptive role in, in, in modern life. So I thought, yeah. But it ends on that, the Sullivan's Travels ends on this very populist, you know, yes. arguably somewhat creepy, but, but very yes. populist and humanist affirmation of the power of the movies. And I don't think the Coen brothers, I mean, I mean they may, may be showing their softer side, but they don't go that far. They almost do though. And then they, I, I won't give anything away. They come so close and then their sar- sardonicism. Yeah, I don't they know, you undercut say- the final scene where that could happen by like cutting away to these people who are moved and look ridiculous for being moved. It, 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 well, or, or do they? I mean, that's why it's an interesting movie and that's why you should go see it. It's called Hail Caesar. Our segment on it is now officially over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I give it a thumbs up. I, everything they do is so oh, smart. see it just to watch Channing Tatum's dance number. I mean, crown jewel. Yeah, and don't don't watch the trailers. This is the other thing I will say. Because all the moments are these little jewel moments that don't mm-hmm. add up to anything, the trailers... I felt like I'd I'd been overpromoted of the movie, and if you'd gone in not expecting anything, you would have been utterly delighted. So don't. So even though we all didn't like it, go see it and don't watch <laughs> any trailers first. Totally agree. Totally agree. And um, tell us, we, this is one of those ones where we really, really want to hear uh, deciding votes on this. Come to Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest. Tell us what you thought of Hail Caesar. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week is The Great Courses. Uh, I think, like many of you listeners, you probably listen to this show because you like to learn things or at least hear people learning things. And that's why we're excited about the new Great Courses Plus video learning service. It offers unlimited access to a huge library of the Great Courses lecture series in so many fascinating subjects. And they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. You can watch one of their most popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for absolutely free. They developed the course in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America. America, America's greatest cooking school that also shares a name with the CIA. I love that fact about the CIA, the other CIA, the food CIA. But without having to join either CIA, you can experience many of the culinary tips that you would get there from the comfort of your own kitchen via video. It's a great way to learn from a master chef. 
For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, The Everyday Gourmet, which is a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Beyonce has once again blowed up the internet, this time with the video for her new song, Formation. It is, in fact, mind-blowing, but I'm a white guy with an easily blown mind, so let me quote a woman of color. Sarita McFadden, writing for The Guardian, said, Formation is both provocation and pleasure, inherently political, and a deeply personal look at the black and queer bodies who have most often borne the brunt of our politics. I should add that um, on the con side, such as Rudy Giuliani have weighed in against, um, but we've invited Wesley Morris, the critic at large for The New York Times, to come in and discuss with us. Wesley, welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. Stephen, did you say, what did you say? What was your what was your diction on that? Blow blowed up? Did you say blowed up? <laughs> I think it's Yeah, I was thinking about the old SCTV skit. Because this is about, about to get real Canadians. up in here if it blowed up. <laughs> it blowed up. It totally blowed up the internet. I just assume that I'm gonna every third syllable I'm gonna misspeak on this. No. Subject, so. See, we cannot have that. I don't want to have a conversation in which you recuse yourself because you're white. I w- I don't accept it. <laughs> Wesley, I've spent a lifetime recusing myself because I'm white. Let's not stop now. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do it. This is on no one but me and John Calvin. Okay, so. um, Oh, I mean, Calvin's a whole other thing that we should probably do a segment about at some point. All right. Well, we should listen to a clip of the song, but I will say, regardless of who gets to talk about this song or whatever arguments about that we do or don't want to have, it does feel crazy to play the song as a piece of music because the song is the video. Like the song, mm-hmm. like I feel like we should turn this into a visual podcast. You could all just watch. You, in fact, you should just, just all go, just go watch, watch the, video. the video formation and then come back and listen to the conversation about Agreed. it. Or don't just go play it on repeat 35 times, which is what I did this weekend. But we will play a clip of uh, the chorus of the song to give us an audio cue. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. But as Julie says, it's kind of all about the visuals in this video. So maybe we should describe some of what you see in formation, which is largely, you know, a lot of different formations. I mean, it seems like this song is about a collective, right, about collectivity in some way. And the main formation that you see is Beyonce and her girls, right, dancing in formation. But there's also see a line of policemen. What are the other formations? Like everything seems to be about Uh, mass gatherings. It is a sort of witchy Beyonce standing on the stoop of 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 a home. Uh, surrounded by her by her men, she's in black. Where she gives the finger. There's Beyonce atop a New Orleans police cruiser that's, that's slowly sinking underwater, submerged in in Katrina esque floodwater. There's you know the women dancing in the Beyonce and and the the Gucci clad women clad, dancing in a pool, an empty pool. Um, Is that where they are? I thought it was just like a dark gym. Uh, it's a it's a pool. Okay, it feels like a it's a pool. Um, and it's dark, so and the pool could be in a gym, so you're not you don't have to write a correction on that, um, <laughs> which is my life now. Do you have to write a correction? You don't have to watch it a thirty sixth no. sixth time. Um, 
And then there's the the I would say the all the all the stuff in the house I find the most to be the most evocative things involving Beyonce directly. The shots of of them sitting sort of gothic style on a divan, the dance they do in the hallway. And then there's the parking lot. There's Beyonce in a sort of acid wash jean jacket. There's two parking lot sequences, right? There's the one, there's the the washed out video one. See, this is parenthetically one of the problems I have with this video. I felt like there might be too much formation. I I probably could have used two of them because they don't really... You get a lot of vibe, you get a lot of atmosphere, but you don't get a lot of it. Whatever, whatever. Like there are a lot of darts, and they're all over the the, the board. And some of them are kind of near a bullseye, and a lot of them are like not getting you any points. You mean in terms of like the the referencing that's going on? Well, like here's a Ferguson reference, here's a Katrina reference. That it becomes to the na- the net is cast so it's, wide. It's clearly a polemic. It is also clearly a bunch of other things involving Beyonce's self. I think there's a kind of defensiveness here on her part in terms of her stating once again her authenticity, which I can imagine this. I mean, I get it. You become very famous and you are, you know, you grew up not terribly rich in the South and now you're a globally mega famous person and you don't want to get too far from your roots and so you have to sort of reclaim your roots from people who might want to take them from you that's a I mean she's sort of been about this sort of high glamour low country conflation for several years now and that's been sort of what's that's one of the things that I find compelling about her but I also think as a visual artist which she not primarily is but I think very much secondarily is I, I just, this video is not one of her best in terms of coherence. Oh, wow. I found the video to be like a total bullseye and I loved it. And I think there are threads in it that feel like they're working at cross purposes to each other in ways that make it, you know, of all of the formations that she makes, maybe it's not entirely the arrow formation all pointing to one exact message. But I just felt like it was really powerful to see a pop star like Beyonce, someone whose art has primarily been about love and her relationship and family and her relationship to beauty and her relationship to love and her relationship to her family and a little bit of the the fame. But like, it's been pretty inward, a lot of it, to have her produce a single and video that are explicitly about the year of Black Lives Matter and connecting her own experience from her birth to her current mega success in the context of being black seemed powerful to me. And it seemed like it was executed with her usual Beyonce, Tracy Flick, a student, like perfection of execution. Like the whole notion of dropping a brand new song 24 hours before the Super Bowl and having the confidence that the video for it and the song itself would be so good that enough of the country would be excited about it and have watched it 36 times in that first 24 hours <laughs> so that she could play a new song at a Super Bowl halftime show and have people be excited about it instead of what the hell. Like to debut a song at the Super Bowl halftime show is is incredibly dumb, right? Like you're supposed to play songs. You're supposed to play like Tom Petty's greatest hits. You're supposed to play songs that the entire country can sing along to because they've known them for two decades. Even if you're not Tom Petty. Yeah, no, like basically everybody should just get up there and play American Girl every year, kind of. I mean, not entirely, but... um, Well, I mean, that is Giuliani's argument basically against the song. I mean, which is a whole other thing. Right, well, and Tom Petty's a bad example because he's an old white guy, but like, you know, when Beyonce nailed it at the halftime show two, three years ago, whenever that 
that was. Yep. She played the Beyonce canon. She played Beyonce's version of American Girl, but she kind of spun through Crazy in Love and all of the hits she's made in the last 15 years that everybody knows by heart. You know, the, the Audi's version of American Girl basically is Crazy in Love, right? So the confidence of execution here, if I'm going to release a new song, I'm confident it's going to be a sensation. Then I'm going to perform it at the Super Bowl. Everyone's going to be excited instead of annoyed. Agree that I've pulverized my buddy Chris Martin and Coldplay to smithereens. And then I want to have the ad spot right after the halftime show where I'm like, I'm doing a tour, guys. Everybody come out. Like, it's this incredible, simultaneously politically powerful thing that is a classically beyond say a student perfect bit of bravado and self-promotion and the whole thing is both classic Beyonce and felt like a very new Beyonce to me because it I despite all of that despite the marketing of it it did not feel craven and cynical to me oh like, no it's the opposite of craven well, but is, you could you could see that point right like I could I she's I like could oh I'm that. gonna I'm gonna do a Black Lives Matter song and then everyone will talk about me and then I'll sell tickets to my tour like there's a there's a there's a way to look at that given her history and career that would be cynical, but no, it, it, right. it, yes. d- it reads as like really personal and really strong to no. me. And I don't disagree with any of that. I am, by the way, I would say in the five stages of Beyonce, I'm probably at acceptance now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Saturday, it was, it was euphoria. I'm not going to do the classic Kubler-Ross breakdown. But I mean, you go through these stages with this sort of thing, at least when you're responsible for like having to think about it and then also having to consume it happily. I did sort of think that, you know, there's a kind of brazenness to her that I I appreciate. Her sense of effrontery is, is very high. And I think that she understands the place that she has in the cultural landscape. And it's very strong at this point. She is news. I mean, everybody stopped what they were doing if you were a culture journalist and you had to deal with this. Like it was like a, it was it was the opposite of a death, obviously, but it was covered like like a meteor had just hit the planet because, in fact, it, it had. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, Julia, I basically come out where you come out. Um, and uh, let me add this, that, you know, there is this question of can anything human happen during the four and a half or five hour ritual that is the Super Bowl. I mean, there is this kind of North Korean vibe now to all of the live performances mm-hmm. at the halftime. <laughs> I was thinking about the opening the opening ceremonies that Russia did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not that far off, right? It's like free enterprises equivalent of totalitarian public, you know, carnival, you know, and I don't know how to shake that out, right? So in the midst of it, someone makes you know, a pretty nakedly potent statement about the relationship between white and black America. It both partakes of the mega-ness and impersonality of everything else around it. It just inexorably, it just has to do that. At the same time, it's like, you know, especially in the middle of a game, Wesley, that was kind of presented as the conflict between an aging white quote unquote all-American quarterback and like a young, super athletic, but perhaps too you know, self-celebrating, you know, black quarterback. A flashy buck, basically. Like, that's the subtext to the Cam Newton, Peyton Manning. The text, right? I mean, it wasn't even the subtext. I couldn't even get it beneath the text. Everyone was trying Everybody's to force Everybody's trying it down to there. shove it under the, under the text, right? But that was the public theater of the Super Bowl this year. That was the storyline. And and so in that sense, you know, and also, you know, you know you're only going to fight mega with mega. 
and this is where she's willing to stake a part of her brand. And I thought that that was that was really important. One other comment I had, and I'm very curious to know, Dana, what you think of this, is that are you amazed at the degree to which the internet is now taken for granted on the production side of culture? That you can produce something as information dense as this video that obviously, first of all, requires the internet sort of on-demand repeated viewing just to kind of assimilate it all in, but also presumes this army of semioticians out there, both amateur and otherwise, waiting to receive it, break it down, comment on it, comment on the commentary on it. Um, you know, everyone from, you know, tenured queer studies professors to, you know, some intern at Jezebel is going to have uh, an opinion about it. And it, it you would only build something that looked like this because you knew that this army was out there waiting for it. Right. I mean, in the final couplet of the song, which I've been like trying to understand, and, and which is the part that keeps nagging at me. Um, and let's actually just play the final the final two lines of the song, which I think are worth talking about. You know, you that bitch when you cause all this conversation. Always stay gracious. Best revenge is your paper. And to me, this is the the part that that makes you wonder what she's exactly trying to say here, right? Because she's she is reckoning with a broader black experience, but also with herself. She has definitely caused all this conversation. We are having this conversation right now. And the thing I can't figure out is the valence on the final line. Always stay gracious. Best revenge is your paper. Like when I first watched the video for the first 14 to 16 times, <laughs> I was like, wait, did she just short circuit this whole thing and be like, well, work hard, be nice, get rich. And that's that that's how you prevail. Maybe now I've just watched it too many times. Now I feel like I'm reading this irony in her delivery of the line that complicates my viewing of the whole song. Yeah, that is a strange positioning. I mean, once again, I don't know. I guess I guess it seems to me like, although the visuals are so powerful, the message of this this song and video seem sort of muddled to me. I mean, it, maybe it's just that those hip hop tropes of like glamour and make the money and like shove it in their face and, you know, whatever, nothing succeeds like success, seem to to grind so awkwardly against the the political imagery that she's tapping into. I think that the way that hit me though was in in the in the greater context of what is actually like just electrifyingly polemical about this song, which is it's not just the paper, it's not just like cash, it's like a deed. It's like mm, property. Like ownership. And like it's your paper. You own yourself. And in, in the new context of New Orleans and the South and, like, black home ownership. And, I mean, I don't know what she was thinking. I'm just telling you why that struck me so profoundly. Yeah. Which is that I just think she is talking about what it means to hopefully have something that belongs to you that hopefully, once you have it, can't be taken away. The irony, of course, is that in New Orleans, something like Katrina happens and you could lose everything. And it's a very complicated thing, like black ownership of anything, your body, your house. And I, I, this song is very conscious. And the video, too, is very conscious of that. And that's that's a very strong thing to say. I don't think it's just like be successful in the way that I'm successful. It's like, ladies, own your shit. Own all of it. Because if you don't, somebody else will, and you won't You won't be happy. And so she really is in dialogue with an aspect of history that very few other women, and I don't like constantly mentioning her and Nina Simone in the same, in the same paragraph, but 
there is a degree to which this is this is not dissimilar. Nina Simone was obviously much more radical, much more revolutionary, but we have to remember also, Beyonce's 34, this is the first song from an album we haven't even heard yet. Yeah. And given the way singles are working now, like r- what Rihanna did last week, by the way, remember Rihanna? <laughs> oh, I know. Remember poor, her? Poor Rihanna. Sad, shadowy Rihanna. Um, the way singles work now, this, might, this could not be on the album. Right. Do you know what I mean? So I just feel like there is a there. This is like the opening salvo in um in what will probably be a much larger thing to think about. All right. Well, this is a an ongoing discussion. Obviously, Wesley it was great to have you join us for it. Uh, the video's formation, obviously, you can find it at pretty much anywhere on the web. But uh, listeners, please uh, you know come to our Facebook page if you so choose and tell us what you thought of it. Facebook.com/slash/culturewrestling. Wesley Morris is the critic at large for the New York Times. Wesley, just a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Nice to talk to you guys. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do you got? The Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored today by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses. The mattress industry has long forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing that industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly on to the consumers. Can I just say I love that the mattress industry is getting disrupted? Like of all of the disruptive businesses that are out there <laughs> disrupting things, things some some things perfectly nice things that Steve probably thinks shouldn't be disrupted. I think we can all agree. It's time to take on big mattress. Big mattress is like one of the worst things because and and it sheerly takes advantage of the fact that the physical size that is just a pain to get a mattress in and out of your house and the sheer like physical size of it and the pain in the assness of it just has left consumers totally beholden to big mattress for so many years because you go you flop down you're like okay the experience of lying successively on 10 different mattresses in this showroom replicates (laughs) sleep in no way like you're like is this what i sleep like is this what comfort is is that like is my shoulder comfortable right now like it's impossible to tell if you actually like sleeping on a mattress from a 10 minute whirl in a showroom uh, and so you have to buy this thing. You're not sure if you're going to like it. And then they charge you whatever the hell they want for it. And once you get it into your house, if you decide you don't like it, it seems really difficult to deal with it because it's huge. It's expensive. You probably can't move it by yourself. And Casper is proposing to solve all of these problems with its service. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Uh, it's a hybrid that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. They cost 500 bucks for a twin size mattress and 950 for king comparing that to industry averages that's an outstanding price point and the whole thing is risk free they offer free delivery and returns within a 100 day period so you can sleep on it for 3 months and figure out what shoulder comfort actually is to you and whether the mattress delivers it uh, and it's that simple plus casper's mattresses are made in america get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com/culture and using the promo code culture I love that our promo code is culture. Like all those other whack podcasts out there that might send you to Casper with their rival promo codes. Do you get to claim yourself as a cultured person as you buy your mattress? You do not. Use our promo code, casper.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. It is that time of year again. We're joined by national treasure Seth Stevenson to talk about Super Bowl ads. Seth, I I think you may be a national treasure the other 364 days of the year, but definitely one day a year, you are national treasure, Seth Stevenson. You are the guy to talk about what transpires during the uh, orgy of free enterprise known as the Super Bowl. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll take treasure to him any day of the year. 
uh, we don't get to passive aggressively jibe each other about the Patriots this year, so we'll have to find other. We can um, still do it. I'm sure I can slip it in somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, let me. I, I know what uh, the question on everybody's mind uh, today is: Are we were we supposed to eat the dachshunds? <laughs> I thought I wondered that too. You know, I didn't even mention that ad in my roundup because that was a lot of people noted that in fact the dachshunds were between buns racing towards the condiments, <laughs> and the idea was we're, we're going to like put relish on the dog and then eat it, and that's an uncomfortable <laughs> thought. But I think most people can maintain that like the duality in their minds that the dachshunds are these cute things that somehow represent Heinz, but also they represent the hot dog. I think most people can handle. Well, I also think <laughs> oh, maybe I, the world. I, I, <laughs> it was turned into my intellectual failure at this. <laughs> but wait a minute. The condiments are catching the dogs, correct? So the implication can't be that the personified condiments are then going to eat yeah, the, the dogs. Monster, it's there weird. has to be an imagined the, third party well, that is going to consume both. Think about, yeah, think about you're eating. When you put that relish on, you're putting human. It's like the intestines of that human are the relish, <laughs> if you think but, about it. I mean, that's that's no better than eating the dog. But uh, But wait a second. You act as though these things aren't. You know, scientifically, like Pavlo, like designed by Pavlov himself to make you think about how delicious it is to, you know, put this particular condiment on a hot dog. I mean, it is stimulating you to think appetitively and about food. It just seemed bizarre to me to introduce into that these cute living dogs. It definitely was not the most bizarre ad, but I did agree that it was bizarre because if you really get yourself fully ensconced in the metaphor, what you're thinking is like, wow, it's so wonderful how much the condiments love the hot dogs that they get slathered upon. That joyous union will be murdered by me and my teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I will destroy all that love. Um, But I, I do like a hot dog with Heinz ketchup, so... If if there's anything I've learned in in, in uh, my long period spent writing about advertising is that you overestimate how much thought. The thought was these puppies are going to be really cute. People are going to love the ad because they're cute puppies, and ever, people will understand, you know, that this that we're not meant to consume the puppies. <laughs> I, I find it, it like. Understanding has nothing to do with how advertising is supposed to work on the human consciousness, but let's move on. Stipulated you're not supposed to eat dachshunds. What was your, what was your, let's go most favorite and least favorite ad this year? Uh, Well, I'll say that um, in terms of effectiveness, the ad that I was most impressed with, 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 the one that I thought actually belonged here, which is, which we, a lot of Super Bowl ads are like, why do they do that? That seems an odd choice. They're not reaching the people they want to reach. It's a lot of money wasted. But there was this laundry detergent, Persol, which is distributed by Unilever in the U.S. It's a German laundry detergent. They've only been in the U.S. since March of 2015. Um, so not a lot of people have heard of them. Now, laundry detergent is something that people of all ages buy, people both genders buy. So it's 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 like a product with a, that hits all the demographics. It's available in Walmart, so it's not like they're advertising and then people can't find the product. And so I thought that was actually a very useful use of your $5 million for 30 seconds to introduce this broad-based product to a huge audience all at once. So I thought that was actually effective advertising. A leading consumer testing publication recently tested the top laundry detergents. The winner, Persil 2-in-1, didn't only beat Tide, it beat every single detergent tested. Boom. Um, I, wait, I love that that's your favorite ad. That is the ad that is literally like a man in a white tuxedo standing between two washing machines being like, hey, an important consumer brand said our detergent was best. You wanted me to say puppy monkey, baby. I, just, I, I, when you, I don't know. When you study, when you write advertising for so long, you, the flash, just the, the flash disappears. The dachshunds, 
you know, fly by the wayside and you're interested in like who actually <laughs> yeah. made the proper <laughs> marketing decision, I thought Purcell made the best marketing decision of the evening. Actually, the other best marketing move of the entire evening was Peyton Manning post-game repeatedly oh. mentioning Budweiser. Oh, just repulsive. I got a couple of priorities first. I want to go kiss my wife and my kids. I want to go... You know, hug my family. I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser tonight, Tracy. I promise you that. And kissing Papa John, smooching Papa John. Can we explain the, the Papa John thing? Strong. I like decided not to figure this out. Papa John is who represents what, and did, was he paid to do that? Papa John is a is a, is a pizza <laughs> pizzapreneur. I don't know what you call him. He's Papa John is pizza. You've never heard of Papa John? No, pizza I know chains? Papa John's pizza is he a chain. Is Papa John, but there's like a man. John. John. <laughs> Who owns Papa Presumably John's a father of some kind. He's the father of the pizza chain. And Pey- Peyton Manning has been a longtime endorser of Papa John Pizza. I see. But also, Peyton Manning owns something like 21 Papa John franchises in Colorado and has you know, spoken on the record about how Colorado legalizing marijuana has you know, improved the pizza <laughs> business in Colorado and what a boon it's been to him. And then he smooched Papa John postgame. He, not, not only did that, but he also mentioned Budweiser completely unprovoked in his post-game interview immediately after the game where people used to mention Disneyland. And Budweiser said, oh, no, we didn't give him any money to do that. We're appreciative that he did that. How nice of him to mention Budweiser for no reason. However, it turns out, in fact, he has an ownership stake in a couple of AB InBev distributors in Louisiana, and thus he does benefit from mentioning Budweiser. So that was another, I felt, very canny marketing move. Wow. Marketer of the game is Peyton. Well, marketer of all-time NFL marketer. Huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that might, in my opinion, that might have been an FTC violation, the fact that he mentioned Budweiser in that context like that. But, you know, that just goes, Ooh. it's just a slew of things that make Peyton Manning horrible, that, the fact that he allegedly had HGH over to his home. <laughs> oh, there we go. His name. I knew we'd get there. You knew it was coming, Steve. You knew it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you haven't said the worst. The worst. Uh so last year was was uh, very notable thematically. If you remember, it was very somber, it, um, which was sort of the, the, the famously somber ad from last year was the dead child for Nationwide Insurance, the little boy who says, I'll never grow up because I died in an accident. <laughs> you, know, you see, like, it was just the saddest. And then there were all the absent dads, like the teary-eyed fathers last year. This, there was, I think there was such a reaction to that last year. Um, or maybe that's something about this this year's uh, the, the the nature of this year's economy or something. But the ads were were really pulled in. They were much tamer. No, you know, there was it was just back to the old tried and true animals. Um, you know, celebrities. So it was it was a pretty boring set of ads. I, what, one thing I noted was a lot of the ads were really small bore in what they were advertising. So it was a lot of like tiny product attributes. So the Honda Ridgeline ad was about we now have speakers in the truck bed, which is like a pretty specific product attribute. Or the Hyundai ad was like now you can remotely start your Hyundai. Um, you know, the Amazon ad wasn't a big brand ad, and this is the first ever Amazon Super Bowl ad, and it wasn't a big brand ad about how wonderful Amazon is. You can buy everything there, and it's this incredible brand. It was just about the Amazon Echo which is their music playing personal assistant speech recognition device. It was just about one little product. Even like the Coca-Cola, which you can usually rely on to have a gigantic epic ad. This year, the ad was about mini Cokes, was about like a a weird little product offshoot, their small can Cokes. So everything just seemed shrunk down. And I don't know if that's something about the tenor of our times. I don't know if that's the nature of advertising today where they're, they're sort of spreading themselves thinner and they're trying to reach people on Snapchat and Twitter. And so they're, you know, it's less useful to, to put all your chips in on this big Super Bowl ad. I don't know what it is, but I felt that everything was just a little bit smaller. Yeah, it felt that way to me, too. And it felt also like one thing we've seen in the past couple years is like intense pre-release hype. Like people recognize that when you release all the ads at once, 
maybe yours isn't going to cut through the clutter. So people would release their ads early and try to start a conversation going before the Super Bowl. And maybe this year, just because we're dealing with the start of the election proper and the Iowa caucuses and the blizzard, like there just was less room to for those ads to gain purchase. But there wasn't a ton of conversation around the ads before the game, you know, and, and then the ads themselves all seemed a little inert. They're becoming less of a big deal. Um, what was the product that was being advertised by the Super Bowl babies with the people from all different generations singing about being Super Bowl it was babies? The NFL, the NFL itself. <laughs> of course. Yes. And Dale, as I noted in my roundup, there were no Patriots babies uh, pictured in that ad. Clearly, Roger Goodell had a hand in that decision. I will say about the, the NFL ad, um, it was charming and Patriots oversights aside, kind of cute. But I found it's if the point of the messaging was football is on the precipice, it's ruining the brains and lives of the men who play it. Uh, it has a real violence problem and a violence against women problem, like the many of the men who play the sport uh, have their transgressions against women swept under the rug by their teams because they'd like them to keep playing the game. Like if, And this was sort of NFL as family, right, was the tagline at the end of the ad. So the conceit of the ad was that all of these choirs were composed of people who were conceived on Super Bowl night by fans of the winning team. So like your team wins, you go, you have sex with your partner, boom, there's a baby. <laughs> I, and then I need you to spell it out for me, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, slow it down for me. So your team wins. Well, Steve, when a man loves a woman. <laughs> but, and, has, and has had eight and a half Budweiser. But am I, so if part of the point here is to say, like, we're a family sport. This isn't just a place where, like, men go to be away from the fold. I'm not sure that harping on, like, un, presumably unplanned or relatively unplanned pregnancies is, like, the message that you send to be like, this is the this is how responsible humans build families. I mean, I'm not saying that any of these children were unwanted or unloved or that this ad wasn't cute, but, like, I was like, come on, NFL. Like, the notion of having a baby at an unexpected moment because you got too drunk watching the Super Bowl isn't, like, yeah. an unmitigated good in the world. Right. And also, by the way, it's one of those, it raises the specter of its opposite, which is that in the losing cities, there are women getting the crap beat out of them. I mean, let's just come out and freaking say it. I hadn't it. thought of that, no, but... but... No, if people, no, but people, if people on Twitter did immediately say, and in the losing cities, what are all those, you know, I mean, I just, I, if it weren't true, I wouldn't feel sort of somewhat obliged to say it. I mean, if if you've been thinking through the issues, which we'll get to in the plus segment about what happens, you know, when you get football bloodlust up, you know, it, it just plays, it plays so many different ways. I, they just didn't, they didn't liberate themselves from their own worst demons by putting this ad on, not at all. I will, I think those are completely fair criticisms. And I, but I will note on the other side of the uh, progressiveness ledger, there was absolutely no cheesecake in yeah. any of the ads. I was this year. amazed. None. And I th- we wouldn't have to go very far back, That's maybe only a couple of years to, to where, um, you know, really hot ladies and skimpy clothes would have been a feature of a lot of the ads and sometimes played for laughs, sometimes played simply for hotness. But that was a very. No, the hottest year. woman was Helen Mirren, who's <laughs> very hot, but is like not a classic. Budweiser babe, but that was like the and Budweiser babe. And not to mention, babe. what Helen Mirren is doing is castigating the viewer for their potential overindulgence in the very product she's selling. Right? I actually, I, I love that Helen Mirren spot. I mean, as as guiltifying PSAs go, that was a that was a funny one. Oh, my beer, lovely. Hello, I'm Helen Mirren, a notoriously frank and uncensored British lady. The collective we are dumbfounded that people still drive drunk. 
So I'll sum it up like this. If you drive drunk, you, simply put, are a short-sighted, utterly useless, oxygen-wasting human form of pollution, a Darwin Award-deserving, selfish coward. That was a great one. It wasn't one of those, you know, usually drunk driving ads. It's like flashing police lights, and here you are, you know, getting your mugshot taken. This was Helen Mirren calling you a pillock. Like you, that's the worst possible much. outcome, the scorn of Mirren. I mean, who, would, who wouldn't stay sober to avoid uh, that? Yeah, and the other, you know, the other, but the Bud Light ad. Bud Light used to have bikini babes all the time. And this year, Bud Light, it's Amy Schumer, front and center for Bud Light, you know, in a very, uh, in a dress and pearls. Um, and she's, you know, one of the frat guys. She's drinking Bud Light. She's not in a sexual object. Um, she's a powerful lady running the Bud Light party. That's why we're forming the Bud Light party. Just wait till you see our caucus. We got the biggest caucus in the country. But it's not like too big. Like, you can handle it. You know, the other, so the other sort of slightly weird, con- so the puppy monkey baby, well, let's briefly talk about the puppy monkey baby, because that was one of the most disturbing images, the most disquieting images of the entire night was Mountain Dew's puppy monkey baby. The three elements, puppy, monkey, and baby coming together in the way that <laughs> dew, juice, and caffeine come together to make Mountain Dew kickstart. <laughs> An unholy trinity. Puppy, monkey, baby. Puppy, monkey, baby. Puppy monkey baby, puppy monkey baby, puppy monkey baby, puppy monkey baby, puppy monkey baby. Mountain Dew Kickstart, Dew, Juice, Caffeine, puppy monkey baby. I mean, I understand why it caught a lot of attention, but I what a weird, what an odd. I guess they, I think, trying to reach the Mountain Dew Kickstart consumer, who I presume is a younger man or a teen or tween man. I can see why the puppy monkey baby would be the kind of disruptive thing that would cut through the cultural clutter that assaults younger men. But how did you guys feel about the puppy monkey baby? And how did you feel specifically about the fact that it was head of the puppy, torso (laughs) of the monkey, lower half, including genitalia of the baby? I loved you pointing that out in your ad roundup. It's true. Once you start to imagine that it's only the nether regions of this creature that partake in the homo sapiens genetic pool, it just, it all becomes very unsettling. Or is it the sterile... <laughs> Definitely sterile, I hope. Uh, I also feel like you might want to give the monkey butt so that you have the monkey tail, which would add they like had a the whole different. Tail. Oh, they had a, it had a monkey tail, okay. which was also interesting. Yeah, it was unclear <laughs> where the monkey tail was coming up, but they did have a monkey tail. <laughs> I see. So that tor- that does raise the question of where the torso begins, actually. Like maybe it's just baby legs, <laughs> but it did have the baby diaper. But you could put a baby diaper on a monkey torso. We'll never know what's under that diaper, Seth. Thank we God. We don't want it. We don't. You don't want to know what's under that diaper. Um, the, uh, the other, the big sort of maybe the most, perhaps the most controversial ad of the night was the Doritos ad where the fetus is seen on ultrasound reaching for a Dorito. There's like the clueless dad is eating Doritos during the ultrasound. And as he holds a Dorito near um, the woman's stomach, the, the, the fetus picture on the ultrasound reaches for the Dorito. And then the somebody throws the Doritos back to the other side of the room and the baby ejects itself. We don't see it. But it's sort of implied the baby has ejected itself <laughs> from the womb in, you know, in quest of the Doritos on the other side of the room. Um, okay. And so Nayral tweeted <laughs> that this was an instance of humanizing fetuses and, and thus uh, expressed its disapproval. How did you guys feel about the, the Dorito ultrasound fetus ad? I felt offended by its stupidity, but not really by its reproductive politics, in part this is like splitting hairs, but the baby, like that was a that was a very far along fetus. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> if he can, in fact, reach. That was like definitely a post twenty that weeks. Is actually, fetus. That right, was that's, like a, that's actually diagnostic of the baby being ready to be born. Oh, he's reaching for Doritos. It's fine. He can survive <laughs> outside seemed, the world. It really seemed like a third trimester fetus. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I don't know. It was dumb. I feel like they were trying to live wire it in a way that the other ads weren't. Like, I think you're right that this was a very conservative group of ads that was trying not to offend. It was not trying not to offend people by being overly pompous and somber. It was trying not to offend people by putting any kind of cheesecake up, which I think is an advantage. One trademark here would be the, the Axe ad, which we should listen to for a minute. Come on, a six pack? Who needs a six pack? When you got the nose. Or a nose when you got the suit. Now you don't need a suit when you got the moves. Or moves when you got the fire. Or fire when you rock those heels. And heels when you ride those wheels. Looks, man, who needs looks when you got the books? Or books when you got some balls. And who needs all that when you get the door? I mean, the notion that Axe Body Spray, which has been the, one of the biggest offenders over the last five or ten years of, like, look, nerdy pimple man, like, spray this on your body and, like, un, un, uh, like babes of untold lusciousness will just fall from the sky like a blizzard, um, you know, like, was suddenly about, like, owning your big nose and, like, being, like, an awesome, like, gay b-boy. Like, go Axe. That's great. And, and dancing in heels. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, yeah, that was, yeah, that the, was like, that was the gender-bending accent. I loved that. Um, and so, so it felt like Doritos was just working in a different mode here where it's, like, instead of trying to not, aff- to entertain without offending, uh, it was, like, let's just push some buttons. Let's go for the, the you know, kind of reproductive politics live wire. Uh, and honestly, who's the Doritos consumer? Is it someone who's going to be offended on either side of the abortion debate? Like, not really. <laughs> like, people who eat Doritos just want Doritos. They're not, like, the world's greatest thinkers. Wow. Wow, Julia. <laughs> what? A slur against what? millions of Americans. <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> We just I lost wish. a huge percentage of our listenership. I, first of all, I eat Doritos. They, they I'll just, people I'll just point who eat that Doritos out. couldn't possibly have an opinion on one of the larger social issues of our time. QED. <laughs> it's all about crunch, just, crunch, crunch for them. I just had trouble getting exercised about that ad. I don't know. Am I wrong? We, is this like a, a dreadful? I mean, you're right. Abortion is under assault. I should be very offended. Are you guys offended? Tell me I'm stupid and I should be offended. I think it lays the basis for a new constitutional theory of fetal viability. I mean, the ability to reach for a salty snack. <laughs> Actually, uh, if that if that's the theory of viability, that works very much in Nairal's favor. Wait, what if yes, that kid exactly. came out, that premature Dorito-reaching infant, and it was the puppy monkey baby? That's <laughs> <laughs> full circle. <laughs> <laughs> um, Seth, is this a fluke year or are, is the Super Bowl ad over as a form? I think it, you know, you could go, I guess you could make the argument in both ways. This certainly seemed like evidence that the Super Bowl ad as a form is over. And this has been an increasing trend. There have been fewer and fewer epic, large scale ads that really felt like Super Bowl ads. People introducing some huge new product or thing. That hasn't been happening in the last couple of years. But you could argue that, you know, the the fracture of audiences at some point it will come closer. Like, I, I would point to that personal ad again, which I know it amuses you how, how uh, bottom line I am about this. But I would it is still the place where you reach 
all demographics all at once, um, and it still is effective for that. And there are ve- and there are vanishingly few ways to do that. So I think it still has a place for certain advertisers, but it may be that the the, the brands or, or context in which it makes sense is is definitely narrowing. I yeah. will say that the personal ad itself did not make me want to try personal, <laughs> but your repeated discussions of the personal ad has raised my personal <laughs> awareness, and I'm actually going to try personal. Well, I own a couple of distributorships of personal. <laughs> <laughs> You're Pete Manninging us. Damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always just a total delight. Thanks for having me. Well, Seth Stevenson's piece on the best Super Bowl ads will be, uh, we'll link to it on our show page, but you can find it at slate.com. All right. Well, um, Seth, will you stick around and endorse with us? I will. Lovely. All right. Um, now is the moment in our program where we endorse. Dana Stevens, what do you got? This week, I am going to endorse a piece of software. And uh, first, I should shout out that it is um, fellow podcaster Tanner Colby, who does the About Race podcast and who has done many a podcast um, with me in the past that recommended this piece of software to me. It's called Scrivener. And I asked before we started taping, Steve, if you wrote your just finished book using this piece of software. And you said no, right? I didn't, though. Midway through, someone told me it was the way to go, and um, I'm certainly going to be checking it out. But yeah, you, you I like kind it? of yeah, I feel like I'm so glad that I listened and discovered it. I mean, I guess I, I I downloaded this as soon as Tanner raved to me about it and said, you know, he's written all all of his books using it. But learning a new, fairly complicated software program when you've already got good old Word that you've been typing away in for decades was somewhat of a low priority task. But once I started getting enough material, enough kind of scattered Word files that I needed some sort of order to put them in, I finally sat down, watched some tutorials, and started using this this very powerful piece of software, Scrivener. And I highly recommend it to anybody who's working on not just a book, but any kind of project involving notes, research. I mean, it could be great for, you know, a, a academic paper or, or even a journalistic, you know, if you had like a long form piece you were working on. Because what it does, how do you describe what it does? I mean, it, it essentially creates a very flexible structure for a lengthy text that you can plug in and import files from in any way you want. So, you know, as, as you're sitting there typing away, composing as if in Word, you can do things like import PDFs into your research, you know, create footnotes and save them for the future, add images and save them in a, a place where they'll come popping back when you need them. I haven't yet figured out all the powerful things that this program can do, because it seems like even if you just use 10% of them, it's, it's, a, it's a big boon for writers. But uh, yeah, I recommend Scrivener very highly. It is not free. It's a fairly expensive piece of software, given that you know you can get so many good things for free. But I think it's really worth the investment. So Scrivener, yeah. you can find it at a site called literatureandlatte.com. Mm-hmm. Um, lovely. All right. Um, and uh, Julia Turner, what do you have? Oh, well, this is an oldie but goodie, but I have not consumed any culture I've truly adored this week beyond Beyonce's formation video. So I will just re-recommend something I've recommended in the past, which is Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. And it's this just toward force of a book. It's set entirely on one day at one football game. It's a Dallas Cowboys game, and it's in the early aughts during the Iraq War, and a group of soldiers who've just accomplished some mysterious but lauded feat in Iraq are home on like a 10-day leave trying to sell the rights to their story to Hollywood and doing a kind of like showcase at the halftime show of this big televised football game along with Destiny's Child. So there's a lot in the book literally about Beyonce as a halftime performer at a football game. uh, And that is one of the very many pleasures that the book offers. It is remains one of my best reads of the last five years. So if you have not, if you didn't listen to me last time, what's wrong with you? Go read it now. (laughs) So good. It also has a thinly veiled Jerry Jones character, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who's quite well done. 
Yeah, the whole thing is great. And actually, I think Ang Lee is making a movie of it uh, soon, relatively those, soon. Those fictional characters got their movie made after all. Uh, mm. Yes, I'm excited about that. So again, that's Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, a title that seems unwieldy until you fall in love with the book, and then it seems mellifluous and perfect. Read it. That sounds terrific. Seth, what do you got? The only culture I've been consuming recently began when I was on a sailboat on vacation, which was delightful, and I started reading the Aubrey Maturin series, which are Patrick O'Brien's books. You may know them as the Master and Commander series. Um, they are set uh, they're in the British Navy, uh, the Royal Navy, and it's a couple of characters um, aboard boats fighting the French. Um, it, it sounds all very naval, and I will admit that I enjoy the references to Miss and Mass, Top Gallants, and, and, and other naval fare, but um, they're just wonderful historical novels. So they were written between 1969 and 1999 by Patrick O'Brien. There are 20 of them. There's a 21st one unfinished um, when O'Brien died in 2000. Um, And they're just so delightful. The two characters are so perfectly drawn and their relationship is so perfectly drawn and the the humor is so dry. They made one movie of of this um, with Russell Crowe who's actually perfectly cast um, and Paul Bettany. Um, So it's the, the, the Captain Jack Aubrey who is this, you know, full of life, um, sea captain, heart of gold, and then his, his partner, uh, the doctor, Stephen Maturin, who is the, has, is the more intellectual, slightly darker soul. And they uh, ride ships together, they, they have string duets, and they talk about life. Um, and <laughs> when, when they're at peace, they're on land, and it just suddenly turns into a Jane Austen novel, which, as you may know, I also love. Um, so imagine a Jane Austen novel, but at sea with lots of naval references. You could not, it's like the puppy monkey baby of books for me. <laughs> You could not make a better book than to combine Jane Austen and Nautical Fair. So uh, the Master of the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien, I will recommend. I would recommend to all, to all, not just people who want to read about Miz and Mess. I have never read any of those. I will confess that I have them classified in my mental library of books I haven't read as dad books. But you're saying <laughs> that's, that's, fa- that's, mm-hmm. that's maybe a fair criticism. It's fair, but it's a dad book worth reading. But I, Julie, I know your love for Jane Austen novels, and I'm telling you the romances here and the language and the, and the delightful characters. Uh, Characters, Regency era characters are right up your alley. All right, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm adding it on list. Do you start at the beginning? I think it's hard also with a twenty book series. Like should I just read? Ma- is start Master and Commander the first one? Start at the beginning. I'm already um, pre sad about reaching the end of the series, even though I'm only just starting book three. I'm already <laughs> I can already picture the moment when I put down on the unfinished twenty first volume in tears, and, and like I'm just I'm locked into <laughs> you this. You are such two thousand twenty four. All right, uh, I, I will add it to my list. A pre-saddened Seth Stevenson endorses Master and Commander. Uh, I've never read them either. I'm psyched to. Um, all right. Well, for my endorsement, um, it's like an old friend, you know, popping up in your social media feed. A band I used to listen to back in the 90s called Freakwater. They're an alt-country band from Louisville, Kentucky, has either reformed or just reappeared after years off of the scene to make a new record. And uh, what, what I've heard so far is terrific. I love these guys. I used to listen to them addictively. Their return is 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 just a total pleasure. So check them out. And then the other thing is, has anyone ever heard of Unit One, the Danish TV series? Whiff. Okay, nothing. Um, <laughs> I but feel it's, like did it's... Plots just endorse it? No, he endorsed something Norwegian. Ah, uh, my no. my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> this is it's. I believe these are the people who went on to make either the Killing or the Bridge. I'm going to say they went on to make the Danish. TV show The Bridge. But first they started, what I love about the show is that it combines some elements of the long form binge watch with many elements of the Law and Order rerun, 
you know, kind of um, standalone episodic TV where, you know, a, a story is told in the course of one hour. There's a totally predictable rhythm to how the drama is going to unfold. The kind of comfort watch of uh, Law and Order with the, you know, depth and novelistic, uh, you know, portrayals of, um, of binge watch TV. And it's from the early aughts. Uh, it's really fun. My sense is that season one holds up really beautifully, and season two starts strong and maybe gets a little weak. I think there are maybe four seasons, 30, 35 episodes all in all. I haven't gotten that much further than season midway through season two. But anyway, dig it. Check it out. Curious to know if anyone likes it. All right. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thank you. It's great to be back. It's so fun to have you back, Steve. Yeah, wonderful. Seth, as always, total pleasure. And Tom Brady socks. Go Jets. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. All hail the chief. And the Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, of course. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and Wesley Morris and Seth Stevenson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. I'm so psyched to be back, and I will see you next week without fail. Bitch, I'm back. I'm popular the man.